I think I'll go ahead and confess what I did last week when I ended the class while we were still being recorded that we would start chapter 6 today. <clears throat> and then was reminded after I turned the recorder off that we still had to finish chapter 5 of Romans. Now that I've studied the rest of chapter 5 in Romans, I wish I could have skipped to chapter 6. <laughs> um, <clears throat> this particular passage is seemingly simple, but it is also extremely profound. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 to 17 reads, Count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him. As he does in all his letters, when he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand. I think Peter was referring to Romans chapter 5, verses 12 to 21, which is our passage today. <clears throat> well, maybe not, but it is rather interesting. So as we um, like to do as a class, I would like us to read the passage together out loud so that we have a, at least a general sense of what, his, what the text reads, and then we'll come back and start digging in. So let's start with chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was the type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. If because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So on the face of it, you kind of read this passage and you go, oh, that makes sense. Uh, maybe. Uh, you get the general gist here of contrasting this idea of the first man, Adam, and the second Adam, Christ. 
But it was interesting, just even last night as uh, Lisa and I were talking about some of this text beforehand, she goes, oh, it's pretty straightforward. And I said, yes, it is pretty straightforward, but the theological implications of what happens in this passage are far beyond what we would normally see when we just simply read something straightforward like this. And that's what we're going to try to do today. Um, because we're going to try to figure out a definition or an understanding of original sin. Now you might say, but that isn't mentioned in this passage. Oh, yes it is. It's all over the place in this passage. Donald Gray Barnhouse said, no doctrine of the Bible is as easy to prove as the doctrine of the original sin. Just look around. <laughs> I wrote here in my notes, we boast of such amazing modern discoveries like medicine or technology and, and more, and yet, narcissism reigns. Something is wrong in society, in humanity, in this world. Generation after generation after generation. There's a great uh, Civil War historian McPherson was his name, he wrote, has written a couple of really amazing books on the history of the Civil War. And he did a lecture in, eight, in 1961 about 1861. And he said, what's the difference? And he said, nothing. Man's inhumanity against man is still alive and well. 100 years later, a Civil War secular historian makes that comment. And here we are, 51 years after that, no, 61 years after that, I think we can say, yeah, because aren't we having people even in the news right now saying, oh, we're on the, on the base, of, on, the, on, on the, in the precipice of another civil war, and you want to go, you know, probably not like that, but the rancor, the disagreement, I wrote here, violence, debauchery, etc. Why are we so bent toward evil? Well, to answer that, well, and I, before I even get into that, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read a little quote from uh, Leon Morris writing about this passage. And as I read this, you need to have the text open in front of you. So you kind of get an idea of what he's talking about. Just as Adam was the head of the race of sinners, so Christ is the head of a new race, the redeemed people of God. That is Paul's argument. The argument is very condensed, and in all translations and comments, we must allow for the possibility that Paul's meaning may at some point be other than we think. But we must not exaggerate this. The main lines of the argument are clear. Indeed, one writer calls it the point where all the lines of Paul's thinking converge, both those of the preceding chapters of Romans and all the chapters that follow. This is like the hinge of everything that has come and everything that will follow. Just these nine verses. <coughs> the construction of the whole is not straightforward. And this is where you look at your text. 
Paul begins to compare Adam and Christ in verse 12. But he breaks off his sentence at the end of the verse to explain the pattern of sin and death in verse 13 and 14. He makes it clear that there are profound dissimilarities between Christ and Adam in 15, 16, and 17. And then in verse 18, he returns to complete succinctly the thought of the unfinished sentence of verse 12. To this, he adds an explanation in verse 19 and then a little section on the law in verses 20 and 21. There's an objectivity to this section that we should not miss. Romans 5, 1 through 11, and then in chapter 6, verses 1 through 9, the pronoun we is constant. But in this passage, 12 through 21, we is never used. It's incredibly objective. He's painting a picture and stepping away from it saying, look, look at the, 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 the panoply. Look at this painting that God has set up for us. And then in chapter 6, he enters us back into that painting. But this is why this passage is somewhat confusing because he starts in verse 12 and interrupts himself. Don't you hate that? When the speaker is going along and they say point number one and they never get to number two? Well, it's probably in their notes. They just never numbered it for you. And so you have to go back later and try to figure out uh, oh, wait, I do that to you guys all the time. Uh, <laughs> I'll find out later when, oh, I forgot to tell them that that was number six or number five. So we are dealing with some pretty big picture ideas. However, I believe that to understand this passage, we first must understand the word sin. Because if we don't understand sin, then none of this makes sense. To understand sin, there are four questions, and I'm going to uh, give credit to Ray Pritchard and to Mark Strauss, as two teachers that I listen to and have read extensively, along with probably 25 other people. Uh, let's just put it this way. And last night at 11 o'clock, I finally said to Lisa, I give up. <laughs> I can't, I cannot do this any more justice and we'll just, we're just going to have to roll with this because this is an overwhelming passage. Uh, the depth and the extent of where it goes outside of just these texts. And as we have done it throughout our, our, our study here, we have taken words and tried to define them. You know, faith, propitiation, uh, righteousness, justification. And we understand those words, then the passage begins to make sense. So now we have to look at sin. And oh, by the way, I own nine books that are entirely theological discussions of sin. And each one is not thin. I pulled out one of them and... <laughs> Earlier this week, I went, oh, nope. <laughs> <laughs> Not in one week. There's no way. 
And then I thought, I'm, I'm going to find one of my shorter systematic theologies that's only like 200 pages long. And I'm going to go and just look at the section on sin. And it was so dense that I was just sitting there going, is he dense or am I dense? I think I'm the one that's being dense here because there was so much to talk about. So how do you boil it down? Well, it comes to some rather practical questions. One, where does sin come from? Two, why do I sin? Three, what happens when I sin? And then four, what is the remedy? For my sin. four questions down on your page. We are going to walk through them because they are all pretty much answered or at least referred to in verses 12 to 14. So, where does sin come from? Why do I sin? What happens when I sin? And what is the remedy for my sin? First, where does sin come from? Oh, geez. we have to go back to Genesis chapter 3. The very beginning. Adam and Eve in the garden. And I'm going to assume we all know the story. But we do need to talk about the story so we have a concept of what's going on. We have God created the perfect place for humanity. <clears throat> Adam and Eve in the garden. There's no sin in the garden. Everything is perfect. They're in perfect fellowship with God. God says, but I have one restriction. Don't eat of what? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Oh, but then comes along who? The serpent. So I heard, was listening to one um, lecture and someone asked from the room, the room, said, so is this before Lucifer fell from heaven or after? It's like, ah. And he had to say, well, you have to say that the serpent was Satan. There's no question. Because for one thing, you would be giving an awful lot of power to an animal, to a reptile to be able to talk and to be able to reason. So it had to be an evil or anti-God individual character or whatever. All right, so you have this, the, the serpent tempting, tricking Eve. And we, you know, there's all the hullabaloo about, oh, you know, the whole reason why the fall of mankind is due to, to a woman. You know, that's not accurate. Because Adam was not tricked. Adam knew exactly what he was doing was wrong. 
It was offered to him. The fruit was offered to him. And he took it willingly, knowing full well that he was disobeying God. So, I'm sorry if you want to put it in secular terms, the feminists are right. Men are all bad. (laughs) But seriously, if you want to really get into this, all right, we've got to start looking. So what happened at that moment? At that moment, sin entered the garden. And what is sin? Give me a a definition of sin. Put anybody in the room. Give Give a shot. Hmm? Missing the mark is the technical meaning of the word hamartia, which is literally if you have a target and you shoot at it and you miss it, you have sinned. You have missed the mark. But theologically, what's the mark that's being missed? Perfection. Hmm? Perfection. Perfection. Following the will of God. Obeying the, the, the rules, I guess you want to call it that. Uh, obeying what God desires. So sin enters the world. The world is no longer perfect. Because disobedience has entered this perfect world. This is known as the fall. Adam fell from a state of innocence to a state of guilt. He fell from grace to judgment. He fell from life to death. Because it's very clear what the consequences were. You had, man would have to as it, work from the toil of the ground. Women would have pain in childbirth. And then there was the prophecy of the Oh, help me with the phraseology, folks. I'm not going to remember it. Um, Yes. Okay. Say it louder so the people on tape could hear it. You you just said it. Yes. Bite the the servant, bite the heel, and then the heel will crush the enmity, which is a picture of eventually the picture of Christ coming in and crushing sin. Okay? So, there are those who will say, well, all of Genesis is actually a myth anyway. You know, it's just, it's just a story. Um, anytime you have someone who starts there, they're already predisposed to disagree with every conclusion you make from that point. So if you can't come to an agreement there, the conversations are going to be a little wonky. Because that's where it all starts. It starts on page 6 of this 2,000 page book. And here we are, we're in Romans, looking back at the very beginning of it all. Because Paul is saying this is the foundation of what sin is, and why Christ came to save us from it. You also have the other challenge in that the Hebrew word Adam or Adam means human, human being. It doesn't mean male. It means human. 
So you have others who will say, well, see, it's just a picture of humanity in general, that humanity in general had a fall. Okay. So I have watched these arguments grow and build. In fact, there's a brand, I wouldn't call it brand new, but there is a new scholastic controversy in, even in Christian theological circles on the historicity of Adam. Did Adam, as a man, exist? And if he did, what did he look like? Not, not mean physically, but, you know, metaphorically or literally. And I mean, these guys go at each other over these, these subtleties. So you think, and I'm just, like I'm saying, we start in Romans 5, and now we're in the midst of a battle over the historicity of Adam? How did we get here? Well, because you keep asking the previous question. What before this means before this means before this. But here's the bottom line where I think the scripture is really, really clear. It says in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, that by one man sin entered the world. There's no other way to read that verse. You can't unread that verse or twist it. Well, you can try, but it's pretty clear. By one man, and by the way, the Greek is anthropos, by one mankind, one human, sin entered the world. So, how do you explain school shootings? Violent guns. By one man, sin entered the world. How do you explain drag queen day in elementary school? By one man, sin entered the world. How do you explain wholesale slaughter of unborn children classified as health? By one man, sin entered the world. How do you explain hacking off a pastor's hand because he preaches the gospel in Nigeria? By one man, sin entered the world. Injustice, fraud, greed, rioting, hatred, pretty much everything you find in Romans chapter 1. By one man, sin entered the world. Barnhouse has another great quote. He says, men hate the doctrine of original sin and seek to deny its existence, but it still stands. They substitute the theory of ascent for the doctrine of descent. But the fall still confronts them. Even if they could sweep away the indestructible revelation of God, their very deeds expose man's sinfulness. And if men deny the evidence of their senses, their own hearts proclaim kinship to death, which envelops all of the race. Apart from the doctrine of the fall, there is no explanation for the course of human history. If the first three chapters of Genesis are destroyed, the facts of history would demand that they be rewritten to account for all that has followed since the day man turned away from God and lost the image in which he was created. Our text stands secure. By one man, sin entered the world. There's no other way around this. Where did sin come from? It came from the garden. 
You, <laughs> just, just no other way to say it. But, now you have the problem. Well, that's good for Adam, you know, that bozo, you know, idiot, what the, you know, but he's not me, so why do I sin? Now we got a problem. And I'm going to ask you to solve it for me. What in the world does Adam's sin have to do with Steve? Other than the fact I'm a jerk baby. You can say, oh, you're a bad guy. Wait a second. What does Adam's sin have to do with us? We inherited it? Nature. What did we inherit? The nature. The nature. Yes. The sin nature. Yes. Adam's sin, as Barnhouse alluded to, broke that image of God in that God had created. And therefore, every human from that point forward has a sin nature. Now we run into a problem. People say, well, that's not fair. I didn't eat from the apple. I mean, come on. You can't tell me that I was condemned to eternal damnation when I was born because that's just not right. In fact, I think everyone starts over and then they start their first sin and then it all falls apart. If you believe that or you preach that, you are a Pelagist. Pelagism. Pelagius was an early church teacher who taught the idea that Adam's sin has nothing to do with the rest of us. Augustine, in 300 AD, came in and has an entire writings called Against Pelagius, where he says, uh-uh. You can't do that because if you do, you have to throw out Romans chapter 5. Pelagius is wanting to ignore this idea that's embedded in Romans chapter 5 verses 12 and on that Adam's sin is imputed, is placed on our account. And again you might say, but that's not fair. Uh, right here. This is the concept of original sin. I'm going to go back and repeat myself because I was off my notes for a minute. Adam is the first man represented all humanity and his sin brought a stain into the heart or the soul, a sin nature. But I hear the cry, it's not fair. All right. It's not fair? Your opponent says it. Go ahead, Chuck. Well, I've really got to bring this back. He created the possibility. God's not sin, doesn't sin. But he gave mankind the ability to choose. And if I have the choice, I'm going to do what I want. I'm not going to fall So he said, no, not my fault. Excellent point, Chuck. And you've just opened up an entire secondary category of theological dispute. <laughs> of divine sovereignty and human's responsibility. If we are 
We have those who are chosen and those who are not chosen according to certain theological things. I'm not going to go there today. Please don't make me. <laughs> but this is that issue right there separates a strong five-point Calvinistic perspective versus uh, like one of my theologian friends, he goes, I'm about three and a half point Calvinist of the five. Goes, I, I can, can't deal with that one, but I like that one. I'm going, well then, then you're not a Calvinist. He goes, well, no, I'm not. I'm a, or as one guy said, I'm a Calminian. <laughs> I'm kind of in between. And I said, oh, that means you're a Baptist. <laughs> <laughs> Again, that's the answer everyone last going, oh my gosh. I mean, seriously, look where we ended up in less than 20 minutes. We started with just reading a passage, and now we're dealing with original sin, we're dealing with imputed sin nature, and we're dealing with divine, uh, divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Ah! But these are fair questions. So here's, here's my answer when someone says, hey, you know, it's not fair. God wouldn't do that. God would not take Adam's sin and place it on me. And I say, okay, then stop sinning. Now. At this moment, right now. And from this point forward, never sin again. Ever. Don't think a bad thought. Don't say a bad word. I mean, don't chew, it, don't go with girls that do. Yeah, don't, yeah, don't smoke, don't chew, don't go with girls that do. Yeah, that's, uh, or don't go to movies either. Oh, no. Uh, but you see, suddenly, they kind of go, but wait, oh, oh, right. There's something in you. Or, even better, if they're a younger person who has children, and say, I want you to go to your 10-year-old, your 10-year-old, and tell them to never do a bad thing or think a bad thing for the rest of their life. The parent goes, <laughs> right. Oh, I, I get it. We are wired for sin. That's what we are. I, don't, I didn't write down the entire quote because it was so long, but there was a, a, a study, a secular study in Minnesota of the behavior proclivities of children. And I'm going to uh, editorialize what they wrote because they were a little more flagrant than I am. But if you give every child free reign to their impulses to satisfy their every desire, they will likely become a criminal and a scourge on society. I mean, there's just, you kind of go, uh, yeah, I guess, uh, I, I can see that. So, but here's the other problem. And Pastor Bajan, he alluded to it slightly in his sermon today, and I just thought, oh, I, man, Perfect. So, we think in the, uh, the dial of what is righteous and what is evil, that there are three settings. There is perfect, there is evil, and then there's us. <laughs> so, if you've heard the statement, well, he's not perfect, but he's a good one. He's a good man. 
They say that about serial killers. They go to the neighbors going, oh, you know, he helped me with my groceries and he, he babysat my kids. I mean, he's a good man. Uh-huh, yeah, but he's 17 boys are buried in his backyard too. He's an evil man. Well, okay, yeah, he's evil. But I'm good. So we think there's three marks on the dial, and there's not. There's either righteous or there's evil. There's no middle button. There's no middle dial click on the, on the dial. Okay, so that means, oh wait, I'm evil. You're evil. Because you're certainly not righteous. Not by yourself you're not. Remember how I made the comment, and I'm going to repeat it again for those of you who didn't hear it before, but those of us who enjoy Major League Baseball, American Baseball, we celebrate people who fail 70% of the time. We call them all-stars because they hit 300. And the guys that hit 200 make $5 million a year. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, that's, that's another story. Uh, but we have this problem is that we're not even celebrating even close to perfection and if someone did hit a thousand, in fact, there was a, there's a, I had to, I have to bring this up. There was an article in the paper a couple weeks ago, one of the coaches for the Diamondbacks, and the various uh, health issues and things that he's gone through in his entire life and how he's kept at it. But when he was in the minor leagues, he was called up to the major leagues for one game and he had one at bat and he got a hit. And I can almost guarantee you he's been holding that over his diamondback player saying, I had a thousand in my career. Boy, you're a loser. And I just go, oh, this is not fair. But he had one at bat and he got a hit so his major league career was perfect in that regard, but it was only one game. Didn't have another chance to fail. And if he had failed the second time, he would have been hitting 500. Yeah. Bobo Holloman pitched a no-hitter his very first game. Oh, there you go. Perfect. In the majors. In the majors. So we have this idea that we're okay. We're in the middle. We're, we're good. No, we're not. I hate to tell it to you. The setting is clicked firmly on evil, and it was clicked there a long time ago. Martin Lloyd-Jones put it this way, Adam's sin is imputed to us, that means credited or put on your account, imputed to us in exactly the same way that Christ's righteousness is imputed to us. It is our union with Adam that accounts for our trouble. It is our corresponding union with Christ that accounts for our salvation. That's why when Christ enters our life 
through faith, the righteousness of Christ is imputed, is credited on our account. So when God looks at our dial, it shows righteous. Because he's not seeing our evil, he's seeing Christ's righteousness. And that point is the exact answer to the objection, it's not fair that I'm a sinner. It's also not fair that Christ paid for my home. That's Very a good perfect point. comeback to that. You know what else is fair? They put that perfect man on the cross. That wasn't fair. And guess what that did for me? Right. Right. Because if you can't have, if you can't say that Adam's sin is, you don't have a sin nature, then you say, then what's the point of Jesus dying on the cross? If you're throwing out, they say throw out the baby with the bathwater, if you throw out one part, you've got to throw it all out. Oh. Why do I sin? So, this takes us to the next piece. What happens when I sin? Well, verses 12 to 14 are kind of clear. There's one answer. One word. Anybody know what the word would be? Judgment. Well, worse than that. Death. 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 Death was not in the garden until the fall. Which, big controversy, thousands of pages, but didn't animals die? uh, Didn't plants die? Oh my gosh, they had to eat the plants. Or did they eat the animals? (gasps) They ate Bambi in the garden. Those those terrible people. And you're like, wait, 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 wait. That isn't what we're talking about here. Because, and again, there becomes a theological controversy. Is Paul referring to physical death or spiritual death? Or both? The majority of theologians would agree with you. However, there are a couple very prominent ones that say that the fall only added physical death to humanity. Charles Hodge and uh, John Murray, that means anything to you? Those are two very powerhouse reformed thinkers would disagree. Who, you know, I'm gonna just say, let's let them have their fun and their symposiums to dialogue on this. My point here is let's look at the text. Verse 12, death comes through sin. It says it right there. And, verse 12, death spread to all, because all sinned. And then verse 14, and yet death reigned from Adam to Moses. And I went, wait, wait. Why did it stop at Moses? Does that mean after Moses, everyone was immortal? So, how would you answer that question? The Ten Commandments were given at that moment, under Moses. The law was established at Moses. That's what Paul is referring to. You don't see it in the text. It's implied you have to know your Old Testament to understand that. 
But he's saying from Adam to Moses, there was no law. Remember in chapter 4, he spent the entirety of chapter 4 talking about Abraham coming to faith before the law. Here he in chapter 5 is saying death came into the world before the law. The law didn't add it. The law merely expressed it and made it more evident to those around him. So you go back to Genesis 5 and you'll find this. Verse 5, Adam lived and then he died. Verse 8, Seth lived and he died. Verse 11, Enosh lived and he died. Verse 14, Kenan lived and he died. And I could keep going. There's no ancestral lineage prior to that in the passages of Genesis. It's very clear. God was trying to say, they lived and then they died. They lived and then they died. So here, <laughs> I was thinking about this. <clears throat> I shouldn't be laughing, but it's kind of morbid. But anyway, so when a coroner fills out a death certificate, there is a line of the cause of death, right? It's a blank that has to be filled in. What if coroners begin to put in the biblical answer? Sin. 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 <laughs> See what would happen. <laughs> well, for one thing, the guy would lose his job because that's, that's a different kind of question. They're saying, what is the physical malady that created this uh, this expiration. But the biblical reason? Sin. If it weren't for sin, we would live forever. At least biblically. Isn't that what, if you read the text, is that what we, you kind of have here? I mean, <clears throat> someone actually put it this way. If Adam hadn't eaten that stinking apple, he would have lived forever. And, but then I wouldn't have been born. And I wouldn't have been able to enjoy the redemption of Jesus Christ. Huh. I don't quite thought of it that way. And I thought, okay, now we're getting even more off the, tack, the beaten track here. <clears throat> so, go to the last question. What happens when I sin is death, then what is the remedy for our sin? And that is found in verses 15 to 17. Notice that the word gift is used five times in three verses. And the word grace is used three times in those three verses. So you have the gift of God, you have the gift of grace, you have the gift of justification, and you have the gift of righteousness all packed into these three verses. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more of the grace of God and the free gift of the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift followed many trespasses brought justification. 
And that verse 17, if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through the one man, much more, in fact, this could be a life verse for many of us, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. I actually went to my shelves and found a book by Jack R. Taylor called Much More, and it's based on this verse. He said, look at this. And as he was a Southern Baptist who believed in the, uh, the abundant life, the Keswick, for those of you who know what that means, K-E-S-W-I-C-K, the Keswick philosophy of, and theology of that living the abundant life through the power of the Holy Spirit. And that entire book called Much More, each chapter said the much more of this, the much more of that. And he kept pointing back to the abundant grace and the righteousness that will reign in our lives through what Jesus did. That is the remedy. So those who live in their sin and wallow in their sin and celebrate their sin, they don't have a remedy. That's the point of this passage. Which is why we have attempted to define sin. So I need to go back. Back to chapter 12. Let's look at some of this again. Now that we understand sin and its origins and the consequence, you can read the passage with a greater understanding. The sin nature, if we are in agreement here in our understanding, the sin nature that came to us via Adam's sin is in our very soul. It has been imputed to us, credited on our account, and there's nothing we can do to remove it. Nothing. That's why when Jesus dies on the cross for our sins, that His righteousness is then imputed against our account to wipe it away. Because there's nothing we can do. We can't tithe enough. We can't pray enough. We can't do enough good things in the neighborhood to wipe out the sin that is in our hearts. And you might say, oh, but I lived a perfect life from the moment of being um, aware of of right and wrong. No, you didn't. Just the simple fact you stated that, you just sinned. Yeah. <laughs> I, I wrote a note from someone. Adam had sinned. He was perfect. He sinned. Therefore, he birthed a new being into this world. Therefore, not a God-directed creation. Hmm. Interesting idea. Interesting idea. little bit of Adam, Genesis 5, Adam was made in God's image, but now Seth is made in Adam's image, Adam's image, which is now corrupt. Yes. That's another way of looking at it. That corruption just simply goes, well, if you think about genetics, you know, I mean, there's all sorts of, I mean, I have a, not a, it's not a direct mole, it's just a mark 
like a mole mark on the top of my right foot. It's been there ever since I was a kid. Doesn't do anything, it's not dangerous, it's just a little imperfection. One of my daughters has the same mark in the same spot. Oh, 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 oh. And I remember looking at her going, no. <laughs> oh my goodness, you are daddy's daughter. <laughs> that's not all she got. That's not all she got, yeah. Unfortunately, you got this thing here. Um, Wayne Grudem puts it this way, and this is really well stated. By the way, if you, you know, Wayne Grudem is from Phoenix Seminary and one of the great teachers of our, of our world. Um, his systematic theology is actually all online now if you want. You can go listen to the lectures and read the book. You can buy the book if you want, um, but you can also get it online. Anyway, uh, I'll just read what it says here. He offers the following thoughts to address our sense of indignation as being held guilty because of Adam's sin. One, everyone who protests that this is unfair has, voluntary, has already voluntarily committed actual sins for which God holds us guilty. And these will constitute the primary basis of our judgment on the last day, for God will render to everyone according to their works. That's Romans chapter 2. And the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, Colossians 3. Two, moreover, some have argued, if any of us were in Adam's place, we also would have sinned, just like he did. And our subsequent rebellion against God demonstrates that. I think that's probably true, but it's not quite a conclusive argument for it assumes too much about what would or would not happen. Such uncertainty is not helpful when trying to deal with someone talking about unfairness because then there's too many variables. Three, the most persuasive answer to the objection is to point out that if we think it's unfair for us to be represented by Adam, when we've already talked about this, then we should also think how unfair it is to be represented by Christ and to have his righteousness imputed to us by God exactly what you were saying. If that's not fair, then that certainly isn't either. So what about babies? What about the innocents? Those that for whatever developmental challenges they are unable to process these these thoughts. I mean, that's where people will then go. If they can't get you with the other arguments, they'll go to this. Saying, well, God isn't going to put babies in hell. No, he probably won't. And so then you start and say, so at what point will he? <laughs> well, we can't answer that question. What do we call it? The age of accountability is one way of, of discussing this. I wrote here in the my last line here on this page, I said, do you believe in a just God? A God who is just and will do what is right at all times. If you do, then this argument just goes away. Because you're not God. You can't answer that question, neither can I. I don't know at what point. You know, on Tuesday, he was perfectly innocent. On Wednesday, nope, it's, it's over. That sin nature just kicked in. I, I just don't see 
God, if you then die on Thursday, that you're going to hell because you, it was your first day and you knew it all. And I just don't see that. But if you go down that path, then you start opening a whole bunch of other kettle of fish. And I will keep saying cliches until the end of our time today. Uh, <laughs> let's keep on. Verse 15 and following. I'm making it worse, sorry. Not a kettle of fish. A bassinet of babies. I don't know, what am I opening? Uh, <laughs> but the free gift is not like the trespass. Turn the page in your handout and look at the charts on page 2. I have charts for verse 16 and charts for verses 18 to 19. They're very similar. In fact, you'll, you'll notice the one thing that I left off on the uh, first chart, you can add it at the bottom. Under the Adam, it should be the word death. And under the Jesus Christ column should be the word life. And under effect. So what you have in the rest of this passage, Paul is brilliantly contrasting the Adam and the Christ. The one and the other. The one brought sin and then brought sin or transgression to many. And then Christ, through one act, brought salvation to many. It wiped all that out. And I was reading in some of the uh, arguments asking the question, why did Paul even do this? Why did Paul get into this argument? What's the point? Well, if you look at it from that hinge idea that what came before, it then sets because in starting in chapter 6 is now how do we live that Christian life that we have this righteousness, how do we live it? Prior, he's setting up the reason why sin came into the world and how ugly it is. And he's saying, where did it ultimately come from? It came from Adam. But remember, he's a Pharisee. Studied under the top teachers of Judaism. They did not teach this. They argued against this idea, and actually many of them used what we, we call the Pelagius view, is that this sin didn't destroy men because every man can work their way to holiness by doing the right things. If you hold the law, you can then wipe it out. So whatever sin you have, you can, or the sacrifices, all these other things going here. So Paul is doing this to, again, re-emphasize our helplessness and our need for Jesus Christ. Whereas a Jewish scholar would come in and go, eh, no, 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 you're, you're, you're taking this too far. And he would say, well... Let's take your argument then and take it to its logical conclusion. You're saying then that if you follow the law, you will be declared righteous. And I'm saying no. It didn't happen for Abraham. Well, of course, then their arguments fall apart. So this, I, 
I would, I would think that's where it's coming, coming to. Because here's a question that one, one writer said, so how many sins did Adam have to commit in order to have condemnation enter the world? How many did it take? Just one. Because that's, again, in the text. One act just takes one. I mean, let's go back to our baseball metaphor. If you're a perfect hitter and you hit 999%, you're not perfect. Uh, I used to teach this when it came to, uh, in writing, um, about the, the reality of typos. I said, when is 99.9% .9 not good enough? It's when you're a pharmacist. One mistake. You can kill somebody. And someone said, so does that mean if 99.9% .9 is good enough, that means there's only 125 words in the dictionary that are misspelled? Start thinking about that for a second. Oh, wait. You can't, which ones? I don't know. I, oh, my gosh. Now I, now I can't even trust my dictionary? Ah, I mean, it was bad enough I can't trust the government. Oh, wait. That went away a long time ago. Um, you, know, I mean, you start thinking of perfection in our modern terms. You realize we have learned to live with imperfection as normal and as okay. Therefore, we then apply it to our Christian lives or to our secular lives. And that's where we come up with that middle click. Righteous, evil. Click, we're just good enough. Nope. So then the alternative question is, how many gifts of God did it take to bring salvation to the world? One. Paul is so brilliant in this. He just goes, it's kind of simple. That's why when you first read the passage, it's simple. It's kind of repetitious. I mean, you can see in verse 12, Paul says, therefore, just as, and that usually means a so then. Just as, so then. But he never does the so then until verse 18. Because he says it again. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation, so one act of righteousness leads to justification. That's where Leon Morris was saying why it's so hard to follow this logic because he starts down a path and then he interrupts himself, goes on these tangents to explain his point. Then he comes back at the very end in verse 18 and really lays it out in a brilliant way. James Montgomery Boyce put it this way. And by the way, James Montgomery Boyce preached on this passage, Romans 12 through 21, 11 times. Over 11 weeks, he hit these 10 verses. I have them in his commentary on Romans, which is four volumes long. And I, again, it was one of those things going, open up going, oh, what does James Montgomery Boyce have to say? Oh! It's a hundred pages, 11 different sermons on this passage. But when he comes to these verses, this verse 18, he says, now we come to what we've been waiting for 
ever since we started this series. Our expectation arose because Paul began the passage with a contrast. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way death came to all men because all sinned. But just when we're expecting the second half of the thought, he broke off, and everything we have been studying since has been a digression or a parenthesis. In fact, there's been two digressions, which should be help, be, would be helpful if we review. So I will do that for us. First, Paul explained the sense in which we all sinned. I'm going to editorialize here, because his paragraph is fairly long. All sinned. It didn't say all have sin or all sin. It's all sinned. Past tense. He's emphasizing the Adam sin in the past. He's not saying what you did yesterday. And remember, there's no we in these verses. It's a paint the picture on the back wall, step back and look at the progression of sin. And since this digression finished at the end of verse 14, we again expect another shoe to drop. Instead, instead of completing the contrast in verse 12, he worked out another long parenthesis to show the difference between our union with Adam on one hand and our union with Christ on the other. It's only when we get to verse 18 that the second shoe finally falls and we get the full impact of the contrast. Paul backs, it, backs up to give it, restating the first part again. Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness with justification that brings life for all men. And there we have it. But then... Lest you have fallen asleep while I was reading this passage to you. I'm actually quoting him. He says, lest you have fallen asleep in the meantime. Have somehow missed the point after this long wait. Paul makes the point again in verse 19. For just as through the disobedience of one man the many were made sinners, so also the obedience of one man the many will be made righteous. So... Before I give you my concluding thoughts, I have one more question just for the fun of it. If we believe, and it sounds like we're all in agreement, that because of Adam's sin, we all have a sin nature credited to our souls as human beings, all of us. So did Jesus have a sin nature? He was fully human. You see where this goes? I don't have an answer for you. It's just a question that comes up. Because if you're going to make the statement that if sin is imputed to humanity, then when Jesus is incarnate as fully human, fully God, did he have a sin nature, meaning he needed redemption? Or did he simply have the proclivity to sin, the ability to sin, but did not? Okay? Yeah, I, I, I That's where you would land. Spirit first, first God created. 
I mean, there's many theologians who say that Jesus did not have a sin nature because if that were true, it wouldn't make sense. And he wouldn't be tempted. And then he wouldn't be tempted, exactly. So again, how do we answer this question? I'll just let you mull it over and uh, write your you know, master's thesis on the topic. Um, because many have attempted to try to square this seemingly in, incompatible idea. But you know what? There are a lot of what's are seemingly incompatible ideas in Scripture. And it's, what's the, it's the grand mystery of the Incarnation in and of itself. Just the simple idea of fully God, fully man inside one being. Let's just start, let's figure that one out first before we start getting into sin nature stuff. Because you can't answer that one either. It's a miracle, and it's God's way of providing for our righteousness. Without it, we don't have a chance. Or we're left with having to work our way. And if we're left with working our way, then there are some Protestant, or not Protestant, sorry, there are some Christian Organizations, some of you grown up in them, that will say if you do certain things, you will then have your chance to get into heaven with enough credits. Or you're in the Muslim world, you follow this, and you're going to be declared good. Or if you're Buddhist, it means you will then be reincarnated in a greater creature than you are now. If you're bad, you're going to come back as a snake or a cow. I mean, just there's all these other variations that men have attempted to try to solve. And the scriptures give us this grand mystery to struggle with. Any thoughts or ideas here? Yeah. But God. Excuse me. I just said, but God. I mean, we keep trying to figure out things, but God. Yeah. He knows he's perfect. He's up there smiling, saying, I'm glad you're thinking about me. Seriously, I'm glad you're thinking about me because if you weren't thinking about me, these questions wouldn't even come up. I mean, that's where I keep coming back. You might get into these theological debates with someone who's trying to discount your faith and you're kind of going, oh, I'm so glad you're interested so that we can even have this conversation because typically... They could care less. Yes. Well, your your uh, remark about uh, you know the, the God nature and the man nature, and that that's the whole crux of why this whole virgin birth is an important thing, mm -hmm. because it does to me it answers the question because we, we there's we've got the God and the man, and we've got the two parts in the procreation, we've got the egg, and then we've got the divine yep. that supplies what normally would be the man's. Carl, guess what you just did? We went from just reading a passage to original sin. Then we go into the sin nature of Jesus. Now we're into the virgin birth. Holy smoke. Isn't it incredible how this one passage opens up 
an extraordinary vista of theological discussions. And they're extremely healthy. They're good discussions to have. But we tend to not realize the import of these just simple verses. Yeah. Well, the fact that, and this is new, but the fact that he's fully God and fully man, his growth, his constant obedience, his temptation, his suffering, his, that's what makes the cross even more weak worthy. That, that someone who lived fully man, never sinned, was in complete obedience, in total oneness with the Father, but as a human, crying out, it just cut the past from me. It's just, and yet still, and that makes the, what happened on the cross even more heart-wrenching, because anytime we see something innocent being barred or destroyed or killed, it's agony. And when we see God innocent, the only ultimately does it drives us to our knees in number one in wonder the extraordinary concepts that are here and the brokenness that we have in ourselves and those who once we have received that redemption we are so grateful because we know the result of what sin is Let's pray. Lord, thank you for our time together, this extraordinary passage. Once again, you have us getting out our shovels and digging in. And the treasures that are here are beyond comprehension. And I think that's the point, so that we could come back to this passage 11 more times and find something new each time we did. That's the beauty of your word, and we're so grateful and thankful that we have the chance to study it together. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.